When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by site co-experts Lucas Johnson and Chris Klein. Welcome to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host here, Christopher Klein, and our producer, Uriah Young. Hey guys, how we doing tonight? Great. Feeling good. We have some basketball to talk about, finally. Finally, you are correct. There is finally basketball, although it is just scrimmages. There's a lot to dissect from these two games, so we're going to jump right into it. Chris, take us away. Yeah, so the Sixers have already played two scrimmages as of this podcast recording. They played the Memphis Grizzlies on July 24th, and then they played the Oklahoma City Thunder earlier today on July 26th. We're just going to go quickly here through the Memphis game, talk about it for a bit, and then we're going to go a bit more in-depth on the OKC game. I, I, I think these were both very positive performances overall. The Sixers starters um, um, really controlled the court when they were on it, so I'm very excited to break it down here. Um, and we're going to start with Memphis. I think the standout here was obviously Ben Simmons. He shot two threes, made one of them, had nine points, seven rebounds, and nine assists in just 22 minutes on the floor. He's probably been the best player for the Sixers in both of these games, especially when he's been engaged, which I think is positive. You know, there are obviously questions about his health coming in. Um, Joel scored 10, minute, 10 points in 13 minutes against Memphis. Didn't play at all in the second half due to what has now been reported as calf tightness. We'll get a bit more into that when we talk about OKC. Um, Al Horford had five points, five assists. Shake Milton scored six points, dropped three dimes in his first run as the starting point guard. And we, we saw some interesting wrinkles with the wing rotation. Matisse Thibel and Furkan Korkmaz were the first two guys off the bench that game. Um, Glenn Robinson with Al Horford, obviously. And then Glenn Robinson was the ninth guy. Alec Burks, the tenth guy. It seems like Joel Embiid and Shake Milton are going to be tethered together quite a bit here in these rotations. So, Lucas, let's just go to your um, thoughts on Ben Simmons here. His three-point attempts. How excited were you to see that? Very excited. Not the fact that he did one, but two, and that he actually did it with defenders in somewhat range of, you know, being able to contest a shot. Now, and we'll get into this with the OKC game, but, you know, obviously I would like to see it a little bit more often, but it's a good start. And I think especially as as long as we see him in the uh, lineup with Embiid, I think we'll probably see him be a little bit more willing to shoot versus when, when Embiid's not available. He looked confident. It was in the flow of the game. I think overall it's a good sign. 
just have to see it more often. Yeah, I think the important thing with moving Ben to power forward, and and it's why the Sixers put so much emphasis on on the position change, is that he's just getting the ball in different parts of the floor. He's been able to attack from the elbow a lot. He's been setting screens on the perimeter. And obviously in that Memphis game, he spaced out to the corner a couple times. Hit some pretty – I mean, those three-point shots were pretty fluid. There wasn't a ton of hesitation. He even had some contests on the first one, I think, from Kyle Anderson. So, uh, I mean, they were pretty encouraging attempts. They they weren't, you know, hesitant. No one's guarding me. It, it wasn't that type of deal. So I, th- I think that was a big positive. And I, I think the other big thing to talk about here is obviously Shake. He's looked very comfortable these first couple of games. He didn't put up a ton of points or assists necessarily in the first game, but he looked very comfortable. Ran some screen and rolls. Had nice chemistry with Joe and Ben. Uh, just broadly speaking, Lucas, uh, what have your thoughts been on Shake so far this this preseason, quote-unquote? Well, before I touch on that, I want to go back to your Simmons point, and I believe it was Brown. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I believe it was either Brown or somebody else in the organization saying that Simmons was very comfortable in the corner three. So, like you said, having him off the ball more, being able to stretch up to that corner three, I think that's really good for him. But going to your point about Shake Milton, I like what I've seen from Shake. Obviously, I think there's still some more development there, especially what I saw in the OKC game. But I think overall, when you look at it, I don't think that it was, you know, I, I think that he can definitely man the position moving forward in, in these playoffs. I want to I see how he performs in the, you know, seeding games and the, uh, the playoffs with Ben and Joel before I anoint him as the point guard of the future. But Positive signs right now. I think he looks comfortable. Everybody talks about his confidence on the court. I think that's plain to see. And there's something there. There's something there. And I think it's good that Brown's letting him play, play through it. So that's a positive sign there. And I like I like the confidence. He's able to attack off the dribble and shoot the ball. So I think, like I said, there's something there. I want to see more, but it's a positive step. Yeah, and just one more point here with the Memphis game before we jump over to OKC. I'm going to maybe be a bit clearer on the rotations here. Al Horford and Furkan Korkmaz were the first two off the bench. They replaced Joel Embiid and Shake Milton. Again, I think Embiid and Milton, when they're on the court together and when they're both healthy, are going to be kind of tethered in these rotations. We saw Josh Richardson play a lot more next to Ben Simmons, which wasn't always the case um, before the hiatus. And then Matisse Thibault, and Glenn Robinson were the eighth and ninth man. Matisse getting far more minutes, I think, than GR3 is what it looks like. And then Burks didn't touch the floor until there were under three minutes left in the first half that game. It looks like he's kind of on the odd, the on man out right now with regard to the playoff rotation. Brett Brown says he wants to use nine men um, by the time the playoffs roll around. So barring any changes, uh, I think Burks is, Burks is that odd man out. What are your thoughts on that, Lucas? So, and I talked to Uriah before you got on the call here, Chris, but I told this to Uriah. I was, and I, and I think I understand why Brown's going this with this because I think me and you both agree that Burks and Robinson would be the safe rotation players. You know that what their floor is, you know what they can give you on a nightly basis at their worst, but their ceiling isn't nearly as high of what Thibault and Korkmaz can give you. Korkmaz can go off for a 30-point game, which we saw against Memphis earlier this year. Or, or, you know, Thibault can be one of the best defensive disruptors in the league. 
when he's, you know, dialed in and not, you know, making rookie mistakes. So I think that plus the fact that Browns just had Thibel and Corkmaz, you know, in the rotation longer, I think that plays a big part into why they kind of leapfrog those two. And honestly, between Robinson and Burks, I think I would actually prefer Burks over Robinson. Not to say that Robinson isn't bad, but I think Burks can give you a little bit more bang for your buck because he he's more he's more diverse as an offensive talent and defensively he's not a liability. So I think I think you know Burks can play on or off the ball, whereas Robinson's just more of that low usage fifth starter or low usage rotation player. So that's that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, Burks averaged 16 a game for Golden State this season, and I understand that the Warriors were, were really bad this year and they just needed someone uh, to put those shots up. But he was an above-average shooter on pretty high volume and carrying kind of the number two or three scoring load a lot for for a pretty good uh, chunk of the season. So I, I do think he has proven that he can he can carry a significant role um, I think his ball handling skills are really important to the Sixers. That's something we can talk about more with this OKC game. But like you said, I think Robinson and Burks are definitely safer than Korkmaz and Thibault. I understand why Brown is going with the younger guys. I think Thibault especially brings a lot to the table defensively that the Sixers value, especially with regard to creating transition opportunities. Korkmaz is the one I'm a bit iffier on. Um, I mean, obviously, he has some really nice chemistry with Ben and Joe. I think that that's a pretty big contributing factor to the minutes he's getting. But Burks can hit a lot of those high-difficulty three-point shots as well, and he does a lot more off the dribble. He's a better defender. I'm, I'm frankly a bit surprised that Moss continues to get the run that he's getting as the, the first wing off the bench. That That's a bit surprising to me. I'm not sure if it's going to hold up in the postseason. I, I would think Feibel eventually gets there as long as he – He's in a total dud offensively, but that's definitely something to keep an eye on moving forward. And just just a couple more points here with Memphis. The Sixers were up by as much as 29 that game when the starters were on the floor. They really just ran the Grizzlies out of the gym. Obviously, the score got closer towards the end. The final score was 90-83, but that was after garbage time with the, uh, the bench cleared out on Philadelphia's end. So really positive performance in my book. Um, Lucas, do you have anything else you want to add before we start on the OKC game? No, I think you touched every uh, po- – well, I guess one thing I'm going to say is that uh, – and we'll talk more about Horford here in a minute in the OKC game, but obviously it wasn't a great game for Horford, first game off the bench in, this, in the first scrimmage. Um, and I, I'll touch more on this in the OKC game, but I, I'm concerned about Horford moving forward. I thought this break would be good for him, but so far there are some red flags. Yeah, I I agree. I I definitely think Horford has uh, maybe underperformed the expectations I had. And just jumping into the OKC game, the Sixers obviously lost 102 to 97, but I would not let that score deceive you. When the starters were on the floor, this was pretty much all Philadelphia. They led by over 20 points for, for a pretty extended period of the game. Um, yeah, when the starters were on the floor, it wasn't even close. OKC's reserves pushed hard at the end, and they made some clutch shots down the stretch. But, I, I mean, I'm not really going to put any stock into what happens when Mario Shayok's on the floor. We'll jump into Horford here first. He scored 13 points, hit four of six from deep, which on the surface looks great. 
He stepped in for Joel Embiid, who was out for the game with calf tightness, something we can talk about um, towards the end here. But I don't think it was that great a performance. What are your notes on his performance, Lucas? And let's kind of dive into what we saw from Horford here. So I actually agree with you. I don't think it, the numbers lie here, at least offensively. Yeah, it was a solid performance for Horford. The offensive numbers were good. But we've seen this with Philly backup centers before. Boban Marjanovic last season put up some impressive numbers offensively. But defensively, there's some holes. And, I, and this is the part that really gives me red flags, is that Horford, for the most part, was not – we know that Horford's not a shot block. But we do know Horford's a, def, you know, positional defender. Like, he'll be in the right spots. There were way too many times early in that game that Horford let people cut to the basket, get easy shots. Uh, Steven Adams was having his way with Horford early on in the game, both on the glass and just in the post in general. I'm concerned about not, not – I think Horford's offense is going to be up and down at this point, especially coming off the bench. I don't think that that's the question. What I'm concerned about is his able his ability to defend because too many times he looked like his feet were stuck in the ground, like they were during the regular season. And I think, you know, despite saying he feels great, his movement. I think you you know while while I think injury was a problem in there, I I also think you were right in saying that Father Time was an issue too because it looks, and he's not the only Sixer that looked like Father Time has been bothering him and we'll talk about that later because me and Uriah talked about that before the show started but I think defensively is where we have some issues with Horford right now yeah I'm I pretty much agree with all your points there I I don't think this was necessarily a a quote-unquote bad game from him because he he did score he did shoot four of six from deep which is great He's not going to do that every night, though, and that's not really something you can bank on with Horford. Came mm-hmm. away with a couple steals. I, I do think he looks more spry than he did before the break. Like, he looks physically better, but as far as rim protection goes, it's still a mess. Um, that was really the big area where Embiid's absence stood out. It's just the Sixers mm-hmm. could not protect the rim. Okay, so he had a lot of easy just drives down the lane and layups there. Um, Horford's still blowing a couple of easy easy shots at the rim as well on the other end that just just kind of showcase his age at this point. So I, I do think Horford at this point, you know, unless we he's he's saving something for later, which I doubt, is probably a known entity. You know, just kind of. Mm-hmm. we know where he's he's going to come up short and we know where he's going to contribute. I think he's looked fine offensively, especially in those lineups where it's him, Ben Simmons, and a few wings. Like He's looked fine there. He's run the court mm-hmm. well. He's He had five assists in the Memphis game, so he's moving the ball. We all know he can pass really well when he's uh, put in a position to do so. So I don't think it's been all bad. I think there have been a few bright spots here and there, but it's definitely not you know some revolutionary all-star level Horford performances. Uh, Mm-hmm. these first couple of games and i don't think we're going to see that so i wrote a piece a couple of days ago uh to offer up my defensive al i guess and i don't think it's aged very well so kind of regret that at this point but we'll we'll see how it goes and i guess we're going to move on to ben simmons here he posted 14 points 11 rebounds nine assists did not take a three in this game but used his size dominated the paint took advantage of a lot of mismatches inside. Ben, again, has been, I think, the best player on the court in both of these games for the for the Sixers between both teams. 
Um, so what did you see out of Ben in this game that you liked, that you didn't like, and what are your thoughts on him at power forward so far? So like I said earlier, I wish that he would have taken a three in this game, but I understand in the practicality of, well, Embiid's not here, so I don't need to space the floor like I need to when he's here. I get that. That's yeah, We don't expect him to, you know, become a willing shooter, you know, all the time right now. He's just – he's starting out. So as much as I would like to see it every single game, even if Embiid's not there, I don't think we're going to. And I think that's just something that we have to accept right now. That being said, I loved – Simmons in this game he the power forward change to power forward has been revolutionary for him and I think it's probably going to unlock something a newfound aggressiveness because I think we can both agree Simmons does his best when he's in attacking the paint and being a you know slashing power forward is a lot it allows him to do that a lot more versus being a playmaker starting off the offense because most of the time it's Milton and that's fine and, you know, but Simmons obviously is still getting his assist. There was one really nice tie play. I believe it was – correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I believe it was in the first quarter. He got – he had a Shea Gill just Alexander on him in the post, and somebody came to double team. And Richardson had this beautiful cut, and he got him with a behind the – no look behind the back pass and got him straight for a layup, and it was so beautiful. And that's just – that kind of encapsulized what Simmons is going to be able to do in the post now. And I think that's positive. I think offensively he's being much more engaged in the offense, being able to attack. So I think this is going to unlock a new gear for Simmons. And I don't expect him to average like 24 points a game, but if he can get around 18 to 20 points a game for these last couple games and during the playoffs, I think that's much more expected and I think we'll probably see the normal stat lines outside of that moving forward as well yeah I think you made a good point with regard to Ben's three-point shot and Joel being out uh, I think the offense just looks completely different when Embiid is out obviously Horford doesn't command the ball as much um, Embiid's much more of a ball stopper than Horford not necessarily a bad thing because you want Embiid to take control of the offense and, and you know, have mm-hmm. those possessions in the post. But when Horford's on the floor, the ball's moving a lot quicker. I think they're running the court a lot more. Uh, ben got out in transition even more this game than he did in the Memphis game. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that contributed to him not getting those uh, spot-up attempts on the corner in the corner. But he, he did space the floor. He did hang around the three-point line um, at times. So I, I do think that's a positive and I, I do think we'll see more attempts, um, in the future, especially once Embiid is back with regards to his performance, um, as a whole, again, just really impressive. He looks a hundred percent healthy. I don't think health is a concern at this point. Um, he's still getting the ball at all over the floor. His handprints have been all over these games, you know, again, from the elbow, from the post, screen and roll he, he's just attacking the defense from so many different places and I, I think getting him the ball in the middle of the floor is really going to open up a lot for the Sixers you know if they bring a double team if they you know he has open shooters on the perimeter we saw Josh Richardson take a few quick trigger threes in this game which was really nice to see I think Bennett power forward just getting him these different looks is really going to help open up his game especially once things slow down in the playoffs I thought this was a super, super positive performance from him. Uh, Lucas, 
any final thoughts before we talk about shake here? So, you know, and I, and one of our contributors, Stuart, he's been on the show before he wrote something, Ben Simmons moved to the power forward was two years too late. And I kind of agree with him and it makes me think, and I might end up writing about this soon. Should Brown get credit for moving Ben Simmons to the power forward position now? Or should he get blamed for not doing it sooner? And I think that's one of those things that we have to seriously consider here. Because he played power forward in college. And, you know, Brown explained his reasoning in the past about why Simmons got put into the point guard position. Because there was nobody there to really, like, be a true point guard besides TJ. And TJ's a backup. Uh, TJ McConnell, of course. So, um, but at the time, you know, you got Markel Fultz. And I think if Fultz's shot wasn't broken when he came to Philly, I think that's when we would have seen it then. But at the same token, um, I think it was, I, you know, it's one of those things that I struggle with. Should we blame Brown for not doing this sooner? Or should we blame the front office? Or, you know, this this or that? or You, you know what I mean? But yeah. I think at the end of the day, I think it's something that's going to catch the league by surprise, and I think it's going to. I think it could it could help the Sixers make a deeper run in the playoffs than what they were projected to be. Because I think we both agreed it wouldn't have been surprising if they got it, if they didn't get out of the first round this this year. But now they have real potential to get to the Eastern Conference Finals, and it not just be like a, a you know being a fan's dream. It's actually like a legit possibility with this new lineup. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I, on the your Simmons point there, I do think we need to give Brown some credit for kind of handing those pick-and-roll ball-handling duties over to Jimmy Butler in the postseason. I think if Jimmy had stayed, we'd, we would have seen a lot more of Ben off the ball this, this season in the regular season before the hiatus. And with regards to Fultz, I mean – you know, if we got what we thought we were getting with Fultz, I definitely think Ben, again, would have been playing more off ball. It's just that you can't really run a, a Fultz-Simmons pick and roll if neither of them poses, you know, any threat outside uh, five feet because no one's going to go out there to defend it. Fultz isn't mm-hmm. going to pull up for those threes or those mid-range jumpers. And it kind of just all goes to crap. It clogs the offense. It just doesn't work. The Sixers really haven't had anyone like Shake. Um break out like this until shake did this season so I, I do think it's really just personnel I don't know how much blame you can put on on Brett there because the Sixers have pretty much needed Ben to do what he's been doing uh, for the first couple of years of his career I mean especially that first season I, I really don't know who you know the Sixers would have been able to lean on at point guard other than Ben so um Yes, it does feel like it's too little too late, but when you put it in, in context, it's, it, it, you know, what were the other options? You know, Markel Fultz wasn't going to contribute in the playoffs. That was never going to happen. He was never ready for that in Philly. And Jimmy's gone. So, you know, what can you do? But Shake's here now. Shake looks the part. And we're going to talk about him here uh, in this next bullet point. So I think uh, just- perfect segue. And and just to you make valid points. I'm not disagreeing with you on that. Um, and I guess maybe my my attention should move more to the front office versus you know versus the team now. But moving on to Shake because he deserves some credit here. I believe he had what 11 points today against the against the Thunder. Was that correct? 
Yeah, so Shake scored 11 on 3 of 6 shooting from deep. I do want to quickly say that I am 100% on board with blaming the front office over Brett Brown. I think that's absolutely the correct take. But with Shake, 11 points, 3 of 6 from deep. Looked the part again today. There's some lineups that Brett Brown ran where it was basically Shake, a couple of backup wings, and Norvell Pell, where Shake was the number one option. Those lineups didn't look too hot. I don't know if you could expect them to. Shake is not built to be the number one option. But as far as how he has looked when he's playing with other starters, I mean, his chemistry with Ben is there. His chemistry with Joe was there in the Memphis game. He looks comfortable having another guy who can pass on the move get dribble penetration. He had some really nice drives to the rack here in this game. There's one play mm-hmm. where he drove baseline, kicked it to Al, who swung it to Tobias for a wing three, and it was really smooth and, and fun to watch. So, I, yeah, I really liked what I've seen out of Shake. I think he looks the part. I don't think, you know, he's in any danger of losing his spot to Al at this point. I think this mm-hmm. is the permanent move moving forward. And, yeah, I mean – it's just nice to see. I think he's picking up where he left off uh, before the season was suspended. So, yeah, I, I, I liked what I see, see, saw from Shake. I did see a couple plays where I'm like, is, is that a problem? Or is that just, you know, him being a young player still developing? Uh, you know, where he had a, a turnover or two where he just dribbled into traffic and it was just a bad, you know, I, you know move. It was just not the right move to make. But overall, I liked what I saw. I want to see more. I want to see what he can do in the playoffs. Uh, I did tell Uriah before you got on our call here, Chris, that I wouldn't be. I I would still target a point guard in the draft. Um, I still think that's a position of need, even with Shake, either as a backup or see if somebody can even become better than Shake, like Kira Lewis, which we both like, or Tyrell Terry, but. Uh, like I said, I like Shake. I think he's going to do great, solid job for us during the playoffs. I want to see what, how far he can push his new development, and we just got to go from there. But um, overall, I think the Sixers are in solid hands. I think he's going to stay in the lineup. I think that's just a smart move. I don't think he's he has to worry about Al Horford or even Alec Burks taking over that job of his. I think. We'll just have to wait and see, but the chemistry's there. He's he's confident. That's one thing that the announcers always talk about is his confidence on the court. He acts like he belongs, and so far he's show, he's showing that he belongs. I want to see how he performs. You know, if he can step up on the big stage, and if the Sixers need a big night from him with Ben and you know Joel on the court, can he do it? But so far, I'm liking what I see. Yeah, I think we're both on the same page here again. um, With regard to your point about kind of those few iffy moments, I think a lot of those came again where he was kind of the number one option. Brett Brown ran a rotation where I think it was Shake, Furkan, Matisse, Glenn Robinson, and Norvell Pell, where it was really just Shake as the only ball handle on the floor. He's not built for that. You know, he's not Kimba Walker. He's not Trey Young. He's not someone who can isolate and get you a lot of points that way. He's much more of a secondary creator. But when you put him next to guys like Tobias and Josh and Ben, he doesn't need to be that guy. And I think that's where he's really going to thrive and really going to help with the Sixers' Paul movement. Um, so I, I really wouldn't put too much stock into those those uh, turnovers and those mistakes just because they, they come in lineup combinations that, A, we aren't going to see when the games start to matter, and, B, that's just not how you optimize shake. And I think, I think Brett Brown's aware of that. 
I think he's kind of just tinkering around, tinkering around in these scrimmages. So I, I really don't view it as a concern. That's fair. That's fair. And uh, I think you, we should probably talk about the, the def- defense today because there were a few standouts, Chris. Um, who really stuck out to you defensively today against the uh, Thunder? Yeah, I mean, we have it down on our sheet here. I think Josh Richardson and Matisse Thibel are the two that we really need to talk about. Obviously, no, we know what we're going to get out of Ben Simmons as far as perimeter defense goes. But Richardson has been a bit more inconsistent than I think a lot of us would have liked this season, given his reputation. And Matisse has as well, uh, kind of towards the second half of the season before the break. We, he, he wasn't quite up to par with where he was early in the season, but both have been really solid these first couple of games. Richardson really shined um, against OKC. He had four steals. Matisse was all over the place, you know, defending Chris Paul, giving him a lot of trouble on the perimeter, just engulfing, you know, jump shots, creating turnovers, deflections, all the stuff, you know, we know and love about him. So what were your thoughts on those two um, and their performance? Well, I'm going to say that Thibel stuck out more to me than Richardson. I think Richardson, we know what we, you know, in seasons past, we've seen what he's done with the Heat. So to see that, it's obviously a nice, you know, it's nice to see that he's starting to become a little bit more consistent. But I think injuries were a huge part of Richardson's problem in this season. So I think as long as he's healthy, we're going to get a solid two-way player with him. Thibel. He's active. He he's not making nearly as many mistakes defensively as he was early on in this, you know, for most of the season. And I think that's a positive, especially considering these are scrimmages, so you wouldn't expect completely clean play. And it hasn't been perfect, but he's you know he's showing a little bit more consistency. And I believe he has the fourth highest deflections per thirty-six minutes in the NBA, and the most out of any Sixers player. So. I think that's just another, you know, notch for uh, Elton Brand being a good scout or at least having a good scouting department in the front office. Yeah, and I think one of the the beauty of the Thibault-Ben Simmons pairing, which we've seen a lot in these scrimmages, we saw a lot during the regular season, and we're going to continue to see, uh, you know, when Ben plays with these second-unit groups. It's just Thibault is geared to, you know, create turnovers and start fast-break possessions and that's where Ben thrives so I I really like the chaos that those two create together I think that's going to be really big down the stretch here and the Sixers should be very pleased with what they've seen from Matisse so far so moving on I want to mention I have to mention how Tobias Harris has been playing I've been very impressed he got to ring the bell after the first game and his game his second game in the against the Thunder has you know, was pretty solid too. I mean, he wasn't, you know, obviously he's still not the marksman from deep that he was back when he was with the Clippers, but overall, I think he's been a little bit more aggressive attacking off the dribble, which has been very nice to see. Chris, what are your thoughts about uh, Harris? Yeah, like you said, he was the bell ringer after the Memphis game, led the team in scoring that game with 15 points, um, scored nine against OKC. I haven't been blown away necessarily by anything that he's done specifically, but, you know, he's been Tobias Harris, and, and we know what we get out of Tobias Harris. Um, you know, he's always going to take criticism because of the contract, and and I understand that to a degree, but he, he is a really, 
I think, underrated player at this point. He scores a lot of those in-between buckets from the short and the mid-range that the Sixers really benefit from when the offense breaks down. He spaces the floor well still. I think him playing more um, a more natural position with Horford in the second unit is going to help him quite a bit. And, yeah, I mean, I think it's been a pretty positive showing from him. He's obviously the emotional and the vocal leader for this team at this point. Um, so, so just a lot to like there. And, um, yeah, very positive stuff. I honestly want to see how his leadership translates to the playoffs. But, you know, your leader isn't usually your best player. So it's not surprising that Harris is uh, – you know, kind of the leader over Ben and Joel just based on the, uh, you know, just based on his experience. He's one of the more, I mean, him and Horford are probably two of the most experienced players in the NBA when it comes to, you know, wins and losses and just, you know, types of changes that they've been through. So I think that's a positive there for the Sixers. But um, there is one more player that we have to talk about in this, uh, when discussing these two games, Chris. So you want to go ahead and uh, introduce that guy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's time that we, we talk about um, the best center on the Sixers roster, Norvell Pell. He's been really good these first couple of scrimmages. He stood out big time in the OKC game, six points, six rebounds, four blocks. Um, we all know about his athleticism, but he's played, I think, pretty under control these past couple of games. He looks really good on defense. He's really used that athleticism to its full effect. He met Nerland's Noel up top. On one really impressive block um, in Sunday afternoon, he threw Nor he threw Nor Noel to the ground. Yeah, block. It yeah. was crazy. It was it was pretty pretty cool to watch. So Lucas, <laughs> what have your thoughts been on Norvell these couple of, first couple of games, and what do you expect from him moving forward? So, I think in terms of shot blocking, rebounding, he's pretty much what the Sixers hope to get out. of. Uh, Noel, speaking of Noel, who was originally, you know, on the Sixers. I think that's fair to say. It's in, in terms of offense, pretty much the same so far as well. Uh, maybe not the quite as active in terms of steals, but pretty much everything else is pretty much what they expected Noel to do on a certain level. Maybe not quite as the elite level as people had Noel after his rookie year, but I think, you know, being an active rim runner, defensive, you know, defensive anchor I think that's a strong possibility and honestly he kind of maybe not as you know you know as strong or as sturdy as you know Amir Johnson but in some ways he kind of reminds me of Amir you know back before he lost his athleticism completely I think obviously he's a better athlete than Amir but at the same time I they, they kind of remind he kind of reminds me of Amir so I think if they can get that from Pell moving forward especially if you know uh, Embiid has missed time or Horford or if they just, you know, somebody gets in foul trouble. I think Pell's showing real promise here, and uh, he's playing himself uh, into getting a pretty big contract, you know, all things considered, this summer. Yeah, I mean, I think as far as, you know, third-string centers go, Pell's a really solid option at this point. I think he fits a lot of what the Sixers need out of a guy like that. You know, he runs the floor hard, which is great next to Ben. He can finish lobs. He eats the glass. He's just been really solid these couple of games, blocking shots, protecting the rim, finishing inside efficiently. Um, there's one play in this OKC game where he sprinted up the court, Ben got the rebound, and threw a line drive, you know, like three-quarters of the court 
and, mm-hmm. and hit Pell, and he hit the layup at full speed with his offhand. hand. I mean, it was really impressive. And, I remember that, yep. Yeah, and you mentioned Noel. I think the key difference there is that Noel was a top-five pick, and Norvell was an undrafted guy who's been overseas for a couple of years. And I, I think that's where it went wrong with Noel. Um, is that he just never really lived up to to that star potential that some thought he had, and you know, I mean, as in terms of Amir and Greg Monroe and Boban, who have been you know the backup options in years past, uh, I think no, Nor- Norvell is a pretty big upgrade. So I think the Sixers should be really happy with what they've seen from him, and you know, hopefully he's back next season um, playing those spot minutes at the at the five because I, I think he's really good uh considering his role yeah and um just to be clear when i say amir i mean you know before you know 2017-18 not 2018-19 amir because that's obviously two those are two different players there like i said i and i wrote about this in the past i think pell's going to be gone and i think a rebuilding team or a team with cap space is going to see him as a you know they're going to pay overpay him and I, as much as I would like to, you know, for him to stay, I don't think it's, it's likely. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it's important to get in here. Um, he, he is on contract through next season. His contract expires in 2021. I, so they I, got I'm him sorry. next year on a minimum deal. Uh, uh, but uh, okay. Yeah, I do think looking forward, I'm not sure he stays on beyond that because he definitely seems like a role player who could get more minutes uh, somewhere where Joel Embiid and Al Horford aren't on the roster. Okay, my mistake. I swore I saw on Basketball Reference that he he was only uh, covered for this year, but who, uh, you're probably right. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? I think we, if we're talking about Pell, we have to talk about the fact that he supplanted a guy like Kyle Quinn, which we both were very high on during the off season. We thought he was a steal, and Quinn. And it's not that he's played bad in these scrimmages. It's, you know, maybe he's looked a little bit slower, but you know that could just be rust and you know the fact that. You know, he has played in a couple months, and he's a bigger guy. Um, but, you know, it's no small feat to jump past Kyle Quinn either. So I think – and I feel bad for Quinn because he's always seen, seeming to get the raw end of the deal when it comes to minutes last two seasons. But Pell's outplayed him. I mean, and he fits more of what Brown wants out of a center, which I think is something that needs, that's important. Yeah, I definitely think Kyle has has maybe made some poor decisions with regard to signing uh, with with contenders who have a lot of depth in the front court. But I think Norvell's legit. I think he's a rotation player. Maybe not in Philadelphia, but uh, you know, league wide, you know, in a vacuum, I think he's someone who who deserves minutes on maybe maybe a less competitive roster. We're gonna move on here. We're gonna talk about the overall game experience. Um, for us watching at home, Lucas, obviously there are no fans in the stands. They've had these giant LED boards um, up and down the sidelines. There have been quote-unquote home teams and away teams. The home teams have gotten their like display packages on these screens and crowd noises and stuff uh, funneled in for the home teams. But as a viewer at home, what have your thoughts been on, on the uh, production value so far? And uh, do you expect it to get any better um, once they introduce these virtual fans that they're talking about? Well, I'm not sure about the virtual fans, but in terms, uh, the gym doesn't look empty. And I think that's that's the important part. I think having 
you know, you know, these walls with the projectors in the background, I think, I think that helps in, in the aesthetic appeal of it. And uh, in terms of sound, I mean, you're not going to be perfect, but I mean, they're having, you know, they're having songs and sounds in the background, sometimes bundled in fan noise, sometimes just different, like, uh, team theme songs. And, and that's fine. I mean, I think all things considered, it's not bad. Um, I don't think I love the fact that you hear, I'd rather hear the, the players talking versus their shoes, but um squeaking but at the same time i i don't think you're you're in a bad place either i think where they were to begin with i think we're in a solid place um you know the fact that they they put this together rather quickly so i can't can't complain i mean obviously it would be a little bit nicer to have it because i'm not gonna lie i kind of i was fighting uh fighting off a nap by the fourth quarter but that was also because you know they're reserves in at that point but um i think overall i think overall it's, it's been solid in terms of entertainment the uh, halftime show i wish was a little bit more but these are scrimmages so i'm thinking once we get you know they actually have you know commentators talk like in the you know tnt studio or wh- wherever they're at uh, once actual games begin yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. I, I've enjoyed watching them. I don't think the the experience has been a negative one by any by any stretch. I will say the microphones under the court were a little bit wonky, especially in the Grizzlies game. I didn't notice it quite as much um, with OKC, but the Grizzlies game it was really loud, and there were just these weird like clunks in the middle of the game that didn't really make any sense, and and I it just was a weird you know, sonic experience. I, I would not recommend them, you know, using that for the national TV games once the regular season starts up. But overall, I think the production value has been fine. I like the LED screens. I don't know how the virtual fan thing is going to work. Just for more clarity on that, they're going to have people basically like live stream in from their living room, I guess, have like 300 or something fans on these LED boards uh, cheering for the home team which sounds fine in theory, but uh, I don't know. It just seems a little weird. Uh, I think I might just prefer the like the big 76ers logo or whatever in, in some uh, background music, but who knows? I, I guess it's, it's nice to try to give home court advantage just to the teams that have earned it, but yeah, on the whole, it's been fine. I, I don't have any real major issues with it. Um, yeah, so I think we're ready to move on here to our next topic, Lucas. So, yeah, and you kind of wrote about this earlier this week, but the idea is that Bleacher Report Bleacher Report has been busy. I give them props because they find stuff to write about. They 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 always have fresh ideas. I give them props. But but not always. I don't always I don't think I think most of Sixers fans don't usually agree with what they have in their in their articles. And I think this is one of them where they uh, ranked the starting five of each uh, team in the bubble. And uh, the Sixers were ranked 12th. So Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I just like you, I I had some, I guess, hesitation. Uh, When I, when I read that article and saw Philly at 12, I definitely think it's a bold take. I, I understand it 
just given how inconsistent Philadelphia has been this season. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's probably the spot the Sixers have earned. Um, and like you mentioned before the show, when we were talking, Shake Milton is a bit of an unknown, even with his breakout before the hiatus. He's only been playing competitive basketball in the NBA with consistent minutes for a couple of months, um, you know, on the top end. So I, I understand it from that perspective. I definitely think Philly has the chance to move up this list if they were to redo it, um, you know, after the regular season or part part way into the, the, the playoffs. But um, based on what we've seen out of the, the scrimmages so far, if we can take anything away from it, it's that the Sixers starters have looked really good when they've been on the court. They've ran both Memphis and OKC off the floor, essentially. And OKC is a legit team. They're number five in the West right now. Ahead of, ahead of teams like Houston. So I, I do think they probably are a bit higher um, if I were to make a list myself, but I do understand it. I was going to try to go ahead in here and just read the 12 teams um, in order, and then we can maybe talk about it a bit better. So I actually have it pulled up, so I'll go ahead and do it for you, Chris. So the Sixers are 12th. Ahead of them at number 11 is the Lakers, number 10 the Nuggets, Number nine, the Jazz. Number eight, the Rockets. Number seven, the Mavericks. Number six, the Raptors. Number five, the Celtics. Number four, the Heat. Number three, the Bucks. Number two, the Clippers. And number one, the Pelicans. So, Chris, out of those, the, the 11 teams ahead of the Sixers, who do you think is too high for their rankings, and who do you think the Sixers should be overtaking in that? Yeah, I think the three that, that stand out to me is um, are Utah at 9, Dallas at 7, and New Orleans at 1, obviously, which we can get to uh, maybe towards the end of this conversation. But I think with the Jazz, you know, uh, as great as Rudy Gobert is defensively and as talented as Donovan Mitchell is, um, without Boyan Bogdanovich, that's a big hole in their rotation offensively. Mike Conley hasn't been very good this year. You know, the Sixers have two all-stars. They have guys like Josh Richardson and Tobias Harris who have been on the fringe of the all-star conversation in the past. And then even as an unknown, you know, Shake is a pretty not much an elite shooter at this point. All, all we've seen out of him from college through the G League, through the NBA, has been over 40% shooting from deep. He's 6'5 with a 7 foot one wingspan at the point guard spot. There's a lot to like there. So he's by no means, you know, someone who you can't uh, project highly. So I, I do think Utah might be a bit high here. Um, the Jazz have been the better team this season, so not to say that that they're it's totally unwarranted, but I might boost Philly ahead of them. Um, Dallas is the same thing. You know, Luka Doncic is a top five player in the league, and that's why they're number seven. And Kristaps Porzingis is really good when he's on. But the guys around them I'm not quite as high on. I understand that more than Utah, again, just because of how good Luka is. But those are the two teams that I would really uh, maybe have some hesitancy on with regard to, to putting them ahead of Philly. So I'm actually going to disagree with you here. Um, so there are three team. There are a couple teams here that I'm kind of questioning if they should be as high as they are, especially if they should be ahead of Philly here. Um, actually, I'm kind of surprised that the Lakers are as low as they are. But um, I guess one team here that I'm kind of surprised. I think you bring up a good point with the Jazz. I think that's the team that we can agree on there. 
Bogdanovich was a 20-point-per-game scorer. Without him, that's just too big of a hole. I think they should drop. I th- I honestly am okay with the Mavericks being where they are because they, they have the best offense in the NBA. I'm not worried about the Mavericks, but I am more I am really surprised about the Heat here. Cause yeah. the way I see it is Jimmy Butler, I don't rank him ahead of Joel Embiid, and I don't rank Bam Adebayo ahead of Ben Simmons. So their two best players are not better than the Sixers two best players. And then the supporting cast, yes, they're a little deeper. But at the same token, I you know their third best player who is who, who would you say that would be? Would that be Dragic? Would that be Dunn? Is not I I wouldn't put say that they're better than Harris. I think overall I I wouldn't put the Heat, even though they have the better record right now. I wouldn't put them ahead of the Sixers in terms of the starting five for sure, even with the unknown of Milton. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think Miami at four is maybe a bit high for me. Um, I've always been a Jimmy Butler fan. I think he's a top 20 guy in the league. I think he might still be even better than Ben Simmons if we want to have that conversation. I think they're they're in a pretty close vicinity there. But as much as I love Jimmy, I do think you bring up a good point where the supporting cast just talent-wise isn't where Phillies is. I do think it fits really well. you got two great shooters in Myers Leonard, Duncan Robinson, Kendrick Nunn as well can light it up from deep. They have a lot of kind of versatility offensively in terms of, you know, putting the ball on the floor, running off screens, spacing the floor. I do think they can give teams a lot of problems that way. And as kind of this secondary ball handler, mid-post scorer, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy's Jimmy. And I think he's, he deserves a lot of credit for what he's been able to, to do with Miami this year. But I, I do agree that four is a bit high. I don't know if I'd, you know, put Philly over them based on what we've seen this season, at least not yet. But I do think four is is a really bold uh, take with regard to Miami. So, and just one more team team that I want to talk about, Chris, here is the Pelicans because they're number one, and we haven't really seen a whole bunch of that lineup, even though they statistically are one of the best in the NBA when they have, you know, Drew Holiday, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson. And Derek Favors, do you think they're they're number one? And where would you still have them ahead of Philly? Yeah, I do think number one is is bold, um, similar to Miami at number four. But I I do understand it in that their net rating is twenty six point three. They're it's the most used lineup the Pelicans have have had this season. So you know, once they got Zion back, it was pretty much full speed ahead. Um, when he's healthy, Zion is already like a top 10 or 20 impact player. I think he's already like in that vicinity when he's healthy and on. Um, he's been really big for them already. Brandon Ingram's an all-star. Drew Holiday's an all-star caliber guy and an elite defender. You got Lonzo who has overhauled his jump shot in a big way and is also an elite defender in his own right. Derek Favors is a really solid option at the five. Like there's a lot to like with New Orleans. It's one of the more talented, you know, top to bottom groups on this list, frankly. So I don't know if I, I even disagree with it at number one. I, I do think, you know, maybe you want to see more of it, though they have played 230 minutes together, which, which isn't, you know, small change. Uh, you know, you could say that it's too early, but I do think the Pelicans' uh, trajectory would earn them this kind of ranking. I, I think they're legit, and I think when Zion's healthy and on the floor, that New Orleans is, you know, a real problem. 
So, Chris, you bring up Lonzo Ball. And, you know, this was a big uh, point of contention, I think, back in the 2017 draft. But looking forward to how uh, Lonzo has developed, if you would redraft that, obviously I think we would all take Jason Tatum. But if Tatum wasn't an option, would you take Lonzo, knowing where he is now and how where Ben is becoming a power forward? Well, I mean, I, I think you'd have to discuss it for sure. I think he's, he's probably going to be one of the five or ten best guys um, out of that draft class, no problem. And I, I do think he fits Philly quite well if he's hitting shots. You know, he's, he's kind of like Ben in a sense in that he needs another kind of half-court playmaker next to him who can get triple penetration, run those pick-and-rolls, kind of uh, work the in-between game a bit. He doesn't do that very well. But New Orleans has that with Drew Holiday it's, and Brandon Ingram as well who can score those points, run those pick-and-rolls, etc. So it's a really good fit for him. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're Philly and you go back and you're reevaluating that pick, Alonzo obviously looks a lot better than Markell at this point, and I think he's finally starting to kind of reach that ceiling that we all thought he had when, when he went number two overall. It was a little rocky I'm at the start there. I think part of that's just due to Los Angeles' poor track record developing players. You can say the same for Ingram, who has really flourished in his first season away from L.A. But Probably his dad, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his dad, there, there's a whole lot of weird stuff going on with Lonzo those first couple of years. But I think he's really settled in in New Orleans. I think he's legit. I think he's a long-term starter there or in the league. And I think he's going to be an impact player for competitive teams, you know, for a long time. And, and I do think it's important to emphasize that he's really good on both sides of the ball. Like, his defense is no joke. I had him as one of my picks for all defense before the season, as one of my predictions, I'm not sure that's going to pan out. It won't, but I, I do think he is of that caliber. So he deserves a ton of credit for the work he's done and the work he's put in. He He's hitting threes at a really high clip now, and obviously we know what he can do as a playmaker. So just kudos to him. Yeah, I think it's something that I would have to strongly consider too. I guess the question is, would he have developed a jump shot if he stayed in Philly? Because, you know, Brett Brown has not had a great track record of developing jump shots for most players either. So I think it's just one of those things that I'm not 100% sure on, but you would have to imagine what the team would look like with Lonzo running the point and Ben Simmons being a power forward. Be one of the best passing teams in the league. Yeah, and I think with Brett and developing jumpers, I don't really know if we can pin that on him because, you know, they've either drafted guys who can't shoot, they've either like drafted Matisse and Zaire, or they've drafted Markell and he's forgotten how to shoot. Uh, but like Landry Shamit and Shake Milton, the guys who they drafted who can shoot, um, have been able to shoot. Um, you know, another example would be Mikhail Bridges, who was a sixer for, you know, like 20 minutes and he was a 40% shooter at Villanova. Now he's like a 29% shooter in Phoenix. So, you know, it's, it's a weird phenomenon, but I do think Lonzo would have figured it out either way. I think he's really smart. I think he's a hard worker. I don't think that's ever been a problem with him. Um, I do think his demeanor has always been very different from his father's. So I, I, I'm a big believer in Lonzo. I like him a lot. And I, I mean, overall, I, I wouldn't put the Pelicans number one if I was making this list. You know, I think Milwaukee and, and the two LA teams would be my top three. But mm -hmm. the Pelicans are legit. And I think – they're probably a top five team when everyone's on the floor. 
And I think Zion, if not next year, in the next few years, is going to be a top 10 player. That's just, he's that good. You know, he, he's legit. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up to a confession here because I think we talked about this in a, in, when we first started this podcast. And I have to admit here, I was wrong about Zion. I honestly had feelings that there was a chance he could end up like Anthony Bennett. Yes, crucify me, Sixer Sense fans. I deserve it. Yes, I know I deserve it. But I have been proven wrong since. But you're right. He could as long as he can stay on the court, he will be an impact player, probably a top ten player. Thanks, Uri, for the boo, by the way. That was that was a good sound effect. That was me. Oh, that was you? Yeah. Oh, I can still give you one. Yeah, maybe Ooh. if you well, I, you know what? I deserve it after, you know, that take. I mean, I just I I didn't have a good feeling and I it was this I mean it was the same type of gut feeling I had about, you know with Luca and Jason No 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 <laughs> Oh well yeah yeah you know what I didn't I was not a huge Luca I, I did not I was not a huge Luca fan. That's mm-hmm. right. I was not. Was was I no, I was still with the Valley of the Suns at that point, wasn't yeah. I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were one of those Aiden guys. Well, to be fair, Aiden is averaging like 19 and t- 12. Yeah. 12. It's not that but, he's bad. It's just that he's... Luke is like the third best player in the league. I'm yeah. not saying... No, no shame to Aiden. He's really good. He's going to be really good. But I never understood the Luca hate. It always baffled me I, that he dropped to number I, three. I just thought the athleticism... I thought the lack of athleticism was going to hurt him more than it actually did. Yeah. Which isn't really at all, but you know, I just I I don't trust European prospects for the most part. That's that's my that's the honest truth. I don't like the, what's the guy from Israel this year. I don't like him, mm-hmm. and it's you know well part of it is he's he has a clunky shot, but you know. So just for the record, I had Luca at number one on my board and Zion at number one on my board, and I had Kristaps Porzingis over. For Julie Loca for back in the day, just to put that on the record, and we're going to move on here and talk about Matisse Thibault and his um, recent uh, exposure as a vlogger on YouTube, um, documenting the bubble. I assume you've watched the episodes as I have, Lucas. You know he's been, you know, as far as someone just sitting in a hotel room with a computer and a camera and a microphone hooked up, the videos have been pretty remarkable in terms of quality. Um, so I think he has a real talent. He was recently uh, featured on Good Morning America, had a full interview, seven-minute interview on the show. So he's getting some real exposure here. What have you thought um, about Matisse's videos, just your general takeaways? What have you liked? What have you maybe not liked? I mean, there really isn't too much not to like. I think it's showing that he'll definitely have a career after basketball and and you know TV either as a personality or as you know somebody behind the camera. Um, honestly, it kind of reminds me back when I was in college. I had a lot of I went to a film school, uh, Regent University. Shout out by the way, um, in Virginia Beach, and uh, it kind of reminds me of some of my friends there who was you know that were aspiring you know people uh, you know aspiring artist and I think he's truly an artist and you know if if he's at half as good as you know a, you know a film from not uh you know cinema television as he is you know defensively I think he'll have a nice long career after basketball but I think it's just it's been I think it's been a nice change of pace for fans that are wondering what's going inside the, uh, inside the bubble. 
one. Yeah, I mean, I think Matisse's videos are probably the clearest window we've gotten into what the bubble actually looks like, how it operates, what players have gone through. And as far as, you know, the exposure goes, like you said, I really don't see how there would be a negative spin on this. I mean, I think it's always good to have multiple interests and multiple talents and to develop those talents and interests. I think that's important. And it's important that we view these guys as as human beings and not basketball players, you know. Like, Mm -hmm. there's much more to everyone in the NBA um, than basketball. And Matisse is a prime example of that. He's also been into photography for a while. You know, he had an Instagram page dedicated to his photographs since before he got to Philadelphia. So this is not a new thing for him. This is, you know, a longstanding interest. It's something he said he's wanted to do for a long time and just hasn't had really the confidence to do. So I'm, I'm glad he's gotten to this point. I've really enjoyed all the episodes so far. He obviously has a great personality. He's probably one of the most likable guys on the roster, if not the most likable guy on the roster. And I look forward to many more videos in the future. Agreed. Well, you're right. I think it's that time of the, the podcast. Yeah, let's get to our Twitter poll question of the week. And it was posted the other day. The image has uh, it shows Joel Embiid. It shows Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. The question that we had for all of our Twitter followers was, Right now, as of today, who is the leader of the 76ers? Out of all the responses, there was one in particular that stood out, got a lot of likes, and that comes from uh, our follower, Rashawn Josie. Forgive me if I mispronounce your name, but uh, Rashawn says, it's clearly Tobias. Leadership requires more than simply being the best player. Tobias provides leadership on the floor and in the locker room. So real quick, guys, what do you guys think? Do you agree or do you think Joe or Ben could be the leader? Okay, yeah, sure, no problem. So I also posted the the same picture on the Facebook page. Funny enough, Uriah, only one person said Tobias. Hmm. Um, yeah, and he actually got some flack for it on uh, on Facebook for it by uh, one of our <laughs> other guys. The guy that said it, it was his name is Tim McKinney, McKenna. And uh, he said Tobias, and he actually got a laugh response to the comments. So that was kind of mean. But, um, <laughs> no, he brought up some good points. And the guy was just, you know, so. Uh, and I tend to agree, yeah, Tobias is, is the leader. I think we've seen that in his social activism. We saw when they started doing interviews with players, once they started coming back into the market, that Tobias was, you know, the emotional leader, the, the social, you know, social rights leader. He's he's become the true leader of this team, and I want to see how this turns into the playoffs. You know, if he can become that go-to guy, you know, if he can bring the you know get Joel and Ben on the you know where they need to be, I think it's de- it's dead on. It has to be Tobias at this point. There is no question. I think this just comes down to how you define leader. I mean, you could you could obviously argue that it's Joel or Ben because they're the best players and they're going to have the most touches. But as far as off the court, I think this is kind of like the Golden State Warriors complex where you have obviously the best players are Steph and Clay, but you got Draymond who's kind of that vocal leader in the locker room who kind of brings everyone together. I think that's what Tobias is for Philly. Like you said, he's been kind of the ringleader with regards to social activism on the team. And just over the hiatus, everyone really from top to bottom of the roster seemed to credit him for keeping guys together, keeping in touch, you know, 
getting group calls together, just checking in on people. I think he's really made an effort to kind of help improve the chemistry that, that was lacking before the break. And I think we're seeing that pay off because the Sixers really seem to be operating on the same wavelength in these scrimmages. Again, they're just scrimmages, so you can't take a ton away from them. But they look better and they look coherent, which was very seldom the case um, before the break, even at home where they're 29-2. and two. I think this looks like a really smooth and coherent group that's playing well together, that's playing off of each other. And I think you can tie a lot of that back to Tobias. So I would agree. I think I think the answer here has to be uh, Tobias Harris. Well, cool, guys. I, I echo those sentiments, and my father-in-law agrees with you guys. He thinks Tobias is, is definitely the leader of the team. And things are looking on the up and up. But as of right now, I think we're ready to close it out, Chris. Thanks again, guys, for listening to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes, Google Play, and Spreaker. As always, we really do genuinely appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. I know these are very hard times for a lot of people right now. So you guys being willing to just kind of give us an hour of your day to sit back and listen and talk Sixers basketball. It means the world to us. We really do genuinely appreciate it. And we have some very exciting guests coming up here in the near future. So you're going to want to stay tuned and check in every week. And we'll see you all soon. Peace out. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune into the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.